Today at Reader's Corner, Toya Wolf, author of Last Summer on State Street. I'm Bob Kustra. Welcome to Reader's Corner. Our guest today is Toya Wolf, author of Last Summer on State Street. In the summer of 1999, the high-rise Robert Taylor Homes on Chicago's South Side, built in 1959 and home to over 20,000 residents at one point, most of whom were African-American, were torn down by the Chicago Housing Authority. Toya Wolf's debut novel is a striking coming-of-age tale told through the young life of Fifi Stevens. It's about friendship, community, and resilience set in the housing projects of Chicago. Toya Wolf's writing has appeared in African Voices, Chicago Journal, Chicago Reader, among many other places. A recipient of the Zora Neale Hurston Bessie Head Fiction Award, her debut novel Last Summer on State Street was named a Best Book of Summer by Good Housekeeping, Chicago Tribune, Publishers Weekly, and more. Toria Wolf, welcome to Reader's Corner. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Boy, that's quite a list of uh, accomplishments before <laughs> most people have even had a chance to read your book. <laughs> I've been very busy. I guess, yeah. <laughs> that's just great. Well, um, we were talking before we went onto the air about um, our Chicago experiences. Yours is, is longer than mine, but um, I did learn, of course, in reading your book and reading the acknowledgments at the end of your book that uh, you grew up in Chicago, and more importantly, you lived in the Robert Taylor Homes. Uh, perhaps as a former resident growing up there, you can fill us in on the details of life in the homes, including just why they were constructed in the first place, if you know, and why they were torn down, and by whom, because that's an interesting story in itself when it comes to who built them and then who destroyed them. Yeah, so they were constructed to house all of the, um, there's like this huge black population coming up from the South, uh, the Great Migration, you know, people were coming up for jobs and um, the city wanted to be very particular about where these black people were going to live. And so they sort of funneled them into a very specific area of the South Side. Um, We later started to use terms like redlining and things like that, but um, just absolutely racist practices of keeping people segregated and sort of putting them in an area that was already a slum, but they sort of built these new buildings on top of an existing slum. And for a while, they were actually homes, um, lovely homes to a lot of families. So what what are they right now? What, what, what went <laughs> in their place? Uh, there's nothing there right now. It, specifically in the area that I write about at um, 49th and State Street, um, there is a high school that was built in the 30s for Black students. It was the only school where Black students could go to high school. And it's a historical landmark, so it's still there. That's DuSable? The, yeah, DuSable. Right. And the site of the Robert Taylor Homes, uh, it's in that area, it's just sort of an open field. And I think if you sort of go further down State Street towards um, downtown, there were some new construction, but I don't actually think it's on any of the site of the Robert Taylor Homes. Uh huh. And I think if I if I remember history correctly, that uh, when they were built, uh, let's say when they were destroyed, I should say, the promise was that oh well, in its place, we're going to put all this really nice uh, low rise housing. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, at least in that particular 
place that didn't happen. Now, in your book, you talk about something called lease compliant because here, here, yeah. you, here you and your family were getting kicked out of this building because it was going to be destroyed. And in order to be replaced somewhere, to find another place, I guess, you had to be lease compliant. Uh, help us understand what that was. So there's a um, – I sort of have the luxury of having all of this information without doing a ton of research because uh, this is a fictional novel. But my – I lived in the Robert Taylor homes. I was born there and then at 18 I left and went away to college. But my mother and younger sister still lived there during the time of this great disruption, I'll call it. Um, and so there, this term least compliant, it's a phrase that was utilized to determine – who was sort of eligible to receive a housing choice voucher, um, also known as like Section 8 voucher, right. to move into another part of the city um, with a subsidized uh, rent. And so if you were lease compliant, you could move out of the high rises into the city, um, theoretically into a nicer place. And then to be lease compliant, um, I sort of vaguely remember that it had a lot to do with like, you know, have you been paying your rent on time? Um, do you have any um, people on the lease who've like been incarcerated like that? You wouldn't be least compliant if you had family members who lived in your home who had, you know, sort of caused any sort of trouble. Um, but of course, I think that's a little bit complicated to determine, like who, who's been a model citizen, if you will. But that's, that's sort of what that phrase meant. And and being a model citizen in in the homes was a very difficult task because it wasn't always up to the mother or the father, whoever was the leader of the household. There were so many ways in which a home or a family could be distracted from this model citizenry, let's put it. Uh, gangs and drugs come to mind, right? Sure, and also antagonized by the um, police. So – it was very, very messy. Well, let's talk about the police for a minute. There, there is a, a section of your novel where the police actually come into the home of, of this family, the Stevens family. Uh, yeah. How close does that come to experiences you may have had? It wasn't a good experience, needless to say. I mean, frankly, sure. uh, you, you'd never know we, we had a, a Fourth Amendment that says there's <laughs> supposed to be a search warrant. Uh, they just blew, blew themselves in and uh, – and did what they wanted to do once they were in. You know, the problem with isolated spaces like uh, housing projects is that um, they're sort of out of the way. You see them, they're very visible, but they're sort of out of the way. And that means um, all sorts of terrible things can happen to its residents. And so it was not unusual for, um, for there to be sort of gang violence, like you'd hear gunshots, and then there would be swarms of police sort of running through the buildings. Um, and it was just, that's just the norm. You talk to anyone who's ever lived in a Robert Taylor homes and they'll tell you like, oh yeah, the police would come bang on doors. And if you open the doors, they would come in. So I definitely wanted to, I wanted to capture the essence of what it was like in my time to live in the Robert Taylor homes. My grandmother moved into the Robert Taylor homes a few years after um, they were constructed. So my mom was raised there. And her experiences in the Robert Taylor homes are very different from my experience. Like my mom grew up at a time when there were trees, when the playground equipment was intact, when families were, when families could look out for each other and it was a safe, happy environment. And I grew up during the eighties and nineties when, you know, there's a crack epidemic, there are gangs in full swing. And so 
I wrote about a season in those buildings when things were deteriorated and um, it just wasn't a great place to live. And so I just wanted to capture the essence of what the day-to-day -day life would be like in one summer. And that includes lots of um, police presence, lots of gang violence, but also like kids running around and actually playing and having um, having a summer experience. And so in this book, you're gonna get all of that, like a holistic view, like there is the, the violence and like the trauma of like police presence, but you also have kids like going to summer school and eating candy and jumping rope. And so it, I know there are a lot of books that are written that are set in housing projects, but I, I set out to write the experience of a little, like little black girls sort of handling gentrification, but also being 12 year olds and what it was like to be a 12 year old in 1999. Well, the, the first reaction I have to your answer there is, is what happened? What accounts for the change from your grandmother's days to your days in the 80s and 90s? It's probably a very difficult question to answer, but uh, it's a remarkable contrast. And, and I, I know that, in a sense, uh, racism is one of the answers because, of course, when you talk about playground equipment falling apart, um, yeah. hey, that's somebody's responsibility in the city of Chicago. And obviously uh, the CHA or whoever it was – uh, lost interest and just let yeah. let the buildings deteriorate? Is that one of the answers? I think so. Faulty elevators, uh, definitely like just no upkeep of trash, all, all of those sorts of things. And you really could argue that this could happen in any property if people stopped, like if you put in a maintenance request and no one ever came and the building sort of just like became this rundown place, I think the residents would change, like their behavior would change. And just their ability to care about the property also. You're listening to Reader's Corner. My guest today is Toya Wolf, author of Last Summer on State Street. So let's talk about uh, the novel itself, about Fifi yeah. Stevens. Why don't you describe for our listeners uh, Fifi Stevens and her family? Yeah, so um, Fifi is she's a 12-year-old girl. Um, she's very sort of uh, community oriented. So she's kind of the leader of her group of girlfriends. She cares very deeply for people. Um, and I, I think a lot of it is sort of mimicking how her mother treats people in the community. And so she wants to bring in outsiders. She wants to make people feel comfortable. And more importantly, she just wants to be a kid. Like all she really cares about is like, when can she get back to jumping rope with her friends? And it becomes, um, there's some conflict there because she has three other friends who are also 12 year olds, but they're starting to sort of become who they want to become. And I think at different stages in our lives, we want to be older and we have different goals. And so um, you've got a kid who really just, she sort of has a Peter Pan complex. She really just wants to be a kid forever. <laughs> and in a place like the Robert Taylor Homes, that's kind of complicated. And it's also like, you know, you can't control other people. So she struggles that summer with watching her friends wanting to grow up and also watching her neighborhood fall down around her. So I, maybe this is obvious from our discussion thus far, but uh, how much of this book is, is Toya Wolf as Fifi Stevens? You know, people who know me would argue that um, I also am a very observant person and care about people deeply, but um, you're going to have to wait a little bit for my memoir. Uh, this <laughs> is not my story. <laughs> I did, you know what? I did sort of um, 
I sort of mined my childhood though for spaces that were very familiar. So all of the, uh, everything from like that, that's my elementary school, um, those hallways, the playground, the parking lot. Fifi spends time over her aunt's house. That's my aunt's house in Roseland, which is another neighborhood um, in Chicago at the far, far south end of Chicago. Um, almost on its way into Indiana. And so I took all those spaces and put them in the book because um, they are places and spaces that are dear to my heart. And a lot of them are not the way um, things have changed. So they're not the same way they were. And so in a way I get to sort of preserve history. So that stuff is Toya Wolf's for sure. Um, but these four girls and their story, um, this, this story belongs to the four of them. Well, it's funny you you said your memoir is yet to come because as I was reading this, one of the questions I was going to ask you is, is this a memoir or is this fiction? And then I thought, it's no, not. I can't ask. I can't ask this author that. I that, that that's not right. So you can ask whatever you like. No, I'm just I'm a fiction writer, and I love I love sort of mixing um, Chicago history with just like my creative imagining of things. Yeah, and I um I have so much respect for people who write creative nonfiction. And people who've, you know, embarked on writing a memoir, because um, I think if I had to stick to, you know, quote unquote, the strict truth, it wouldn't be as fun anymore for me. Right, right. So do you think you'll do another novel that will be similar to uh, Last Summer on State Street? I've thought about it recently. Um, it actually was not like I worked on this book for about 15 years. And so the story ideas for other books have just piled up and I finally get to start the next book, you know. Right. Um, but but lately I've been thinking I may want to hang out in this in this uh, story world a little bit longer. I don't blame you at all. It's, it, <laughs> I, I wanted to hang out in it longer and I was yeah. uh, just reading it. So help us understand the role of grandmothers in the lives of men and women living in the projects, uh, as they do in your book and in your own life, as you explain in the acknowledgments. Well, they definitely um, preserve and hold the history of the South. What a lot of uh, these folks have in common is that their grandparents came up from the South and that was a very different way of living um, they weren't living in high-rise buildings. They weren't living in cities mostly. And so you have like your elders coming up and they have all the recipes. They have all the oral tellings. They have like a connection to slavery even because oftentimes it was maybe their grandparents who were enslaved. And so um, the sort of grandparents, they hold all the history and they actually sort of watch the neighborhood change over the years. And so I don't know. They're kind of the wise elders. And some of them, unfortunately, are actually raising their grand um, kids. They're, they're bringing them up because maybe their parents um, needed help or they weren't there. And so um, I think you had lots of children in the Robert Taylor homes. You also have lots of elderly people. And when I think back, there were a lot of senior citizens who were very active. They drove their own cars. They um, they were not to be messed with, you know? So right. I really wanted to have uh, a character like that and just kind of represent what it means to age in these buildings and how um, they weren't victims. Well, that's one of the things that really connected me with your novel because, again, I had done some work in North Lawndale, which is on the west side of Chicago, and uh, yeah. there, were, there were a lot of low-rise CHA housing there. 
and I met many grandmothers who were doing a beautiful job of raising their grandchildren. And in, in some cases, anyway, it was because the mother and father just they weren't there. You know, they yeah. they, they they fled whatever drugs in some cases. And um, it, it's it's a remarkable part of life in Chicago and in public housing that I think few people understand. So Fifi's life is a success story. Um, I, I don't think that's giving anything away. Um, <laughs> you, you do throughout the book root for her and what she's going through with her brother and her friends. What accounts for Fifi's success? What does she have going for her that um, the others, especially the um, the one named Tanya, I believe her name is, um, yeah. didn't have going for her? Well, Mama Pearl, who is the sort of senior citizen mentor type in the book, uh, she would argue that it has a lot to do with her making decisions about what she wants to do with her life. But I would say it's a combination of things. Um, I definitely think her mom gave her a lot of tools um, to be hopeful, to try to be careful like with how she behaves in the neighborhood. But I also think there's a lot of chance and luck because there are folks who, who want to argue that your parents are sort of a direct result of your success. But when you are, um, when you go out in the world, not even just the Robert Taylor Holmes, I mean, today in 2022, when you go out in the world, um, you have no idea if you're going to make it back home in the evening. And I just think in those buildings you had, if at home there was love and there was um, guidance, you had more tools when you went outside um, and you had a better chance at survival. And so I think Fifi had all the right things going for her. And also she just happened to sort of survive that era of her life mm-hmm. and not catch a stray bullet and not be victimized by anyone. You know, just there's a lot of luck involved, I think. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Toya Wolf. It's her debut novel, Last Summer on State Street, that we happen to be talking about right now. So how do you describe the role that religion plays in the lives of some of these families in the homes? And I say some because it doesn't apply to all of them, but you do bring the the religious uh, aspect into your novel. I think about growing up and um, there were a lot of people – and I think this comes from like African-American culture, again, coming up from the South. There are a lot of people who have this foundation um, in Christianity. And when I was growing up, I remember it was just part of like, it was part of the safety umbrella. You know, you mm-hmm. were always praying about your safety. And, you know, my mom and grandma, they were always praying when we went outside and we would come back, you know, unscathed and that sort of thing. And so um, I think there are ways to, use God as sort of a genie to grant wishes. And then there is actually having like a relationship with God. And I wanted to show the spectrum in this book of people who like really wanted to have like a integrated relationship with God that informed everything they did. And then like we have some characters who are introduced to God and they don't quite understand what it means to um, to understand the wholeness of God and to have like a daily walk in a relationship and like what it means to 
sort of have this very shallow relationship with God where you just ask for things and then when you don't get them, you're in conflict with God. So there's there's some of that in the book, like some characters sort of wrestling with what it means to be a Christian and what it means to have a relationship with God. A teacher can also make a huge difference uh, in, in a child's life. And uh, yes. you bring a teacher into this novel, uh, Fifi's teacher, who makes an yeah. enormous impression on her. Tell us about that. Yeah, this teacher is, um, she's a teacher, she's a social worker, she's a cheerleader, a motivational speaker. Um, <laughs> she, she puts on so many hats. And I just, um, you know, people talk about public schools and I don't know if anyone's watching like Abbott Elementary right now, but there are schools all over that don't have a lot of money, but what they have in, um, in gold, uh, are these teachers who understand the population that they're teaching. So they know that they've got their curriculum, but they also have to pay attention to like, who's not eating, whose behavior is different today. And what does that mean? Like what's going on with them? Like I, I wanted to really characterize the teachers that I sort of grew up with who did so many things in the time that they had their students and Miss Pierce is the teacher in this book and you'll you'll get to know her and you'll get to see what I mean by like you know teachers who do all the things I thought your description of how a young black boy is co-opted by a gang, and I use that word co-optive uh, mm-hmm. cautiously, but it, it, I, I guess it was so helpful in my understanding how young men wind up in jail and then in prison. And in some ways, at least when they first cross the line, it's almost involuntary. It's peer pressure like none of us could ever imagine from my growing up, for example. You know, I I just never had an ounce uh, of the peer pressure that this kid has when he leaves his apartment. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I had a friend who explained to me um, he lived, he didn't live in the Robert Taylor homes. He lived in another public housing building in Inglewood in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And he, his buildings were ran by one gang. And then he went to, um, an elementary school in another neighborhood that was ran by a totally different gang. And he had decided that he would just fight, that he wasn't going to join either of these gangs. And so he would fight the guys in his home neighborhood and then he'd go to school and have to fight those guys too. And I just, I just don't, I don't think people understand when you're watching the news and you see that like some young black boys on TV and he's committed some crime or he's like, you know, a known gangbanger. We have no idea how he got there and whether or not it was his choice in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I really wanted to like lay that story out and what that looks like to, sort of against your will to be dragged into an organization. It's a, just a very violent draft, if you will. And I just, I hadn't seen it anywhere, um, hadn't read about it. And I really just wanted to tell that story of what black boys and maybe not just black boys, but like in the Robert Taylor homes, like black boys um, in the eighties and nineties, like what that looked like. And, and by the way, you just uh, said something there that is an important point that uh, maybe I missed in introducing you in your book, the Robert Taylor Holmes was not exclusively African-American originally. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. And I guess over time that may have changed, but um, originally that was- But it was predominantly black from its inception. Sure. 
Yeah, and in fact, um, I, I should tell our listeners there's a companion book to your book, I think, called The Color of yeah. Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. And in there, the author, Richard Rothstein, gives a very good explanation of how the 1949 Housing Act that actually created the Robert Taylor Homes was forced through the Senate without a provision that said there had to be desegregation. Uh, and so, so, so from the very beginning of, of this uh, idea of Truman's, President Truman, who said we need more public housing, um, they, they were going to be segregated. And, and that was yeah. that. And the, the Southerners, the white Southerners, wouldn't allow a, that bill out with an amendment that called for a desegregated public housing project. And that's why you, you wound up, uh, as you say, in a development that was almost exclusively African-American. So let's talk about drugs for just a moment. I want to give you a chance to comment on it because drugs are center stage in what could be called a morality play on public housing in your novel. And, you know, you talked about in the days that your grandmother lived in the Robert Taylor homes. It was so different. Uh, I I know you're not a sociologist and I'm asking asking you you for a, a, a solution to the drug crisis. But obviously it was a lot worse when you were living there. And worse now, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it's it's interesting. When you are a kid, um, you see drug addiction. You see it in the neglect in some classmates. Like you, you see that they're not taken care of and there's an assumption that their parent might be using drugs. Um, you sometimes see drug addicts walking around. Um, Sometimes like zombies, um, you know, you know what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't, you're not so up close. You may not be so up close and personal with like the gangsters who are actually selling the drugs, but you know that that's what they do. And so it's just this very like, it's everywhere. It's all around you. Um, but if it's not happening in your household, then you don't see it firsthand, but there are just all these symptoms all over the place that this thing is sort of eating away at the community. Mm-hmm. Well put. Toward the end of your book, Fifi is analyzing in her own mind just who was at fault for the travails of the Buchanan family. Now, the Buchanan family was the family from which her dear friend Stacia came from, I believe, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And and uh, this is one of her friends uh, who doesn't wind up as, as one might argue, as successful as, as Fifi does. But um, the line is this. Uh, this I'm quoting Fifi. They weren't the originators of our misfortune. They were the victims of it, just like the rest of us. Yeah. If you could comment on that. Yeah, you know, I, um, I'm i one of those people who um, I want to know what created the villain, right? And mm-hmm. I had an opportunity to let this character sort of muse about how the Buchanans became the Buchanans. And it's sort of like if you pull back, they are residents just like everybody else. And they are people. They deserve safe housing. And so I think um, I think it was important for Fifi to land in a place where she understood that Stacia was just not inherently evil. Um, and maybe even like the rest of her family, too, that like they also were shuffled around and pushed out of their home and they were also struggling with like having this tiny bit of land in Chicago that was like a slum, you know? Mm -hmm. And so 
I think it's very easy to read this book and to point the finger at, you know, a few people and say like they are the antagonist, but um, I think it's bigger. It's bigger than the people. It's their institutions, their policies and laws. And so I think that's, that's where Fifi's going with this, that like as much as she wants to blame them, she knows and her she's sort of in her adult wisdom looking back she knows that it's bigger than than that family well i'm not a sociologist either and it certainly <laughs> reminds me of the of the storm that has been created over the words critical race theory but in many yeah. respects as i read your novel and then read the work of a book like the color of law uh I, I don't know what else you can you can do other than call a, call it what it is. And uh, the fact is, there's a great deal of of racism injected into this into the lives of the people in the novel that um, may not be completely uh, evident. But yeah. you you've done a beautiful job of of helping us understand how it is responsible. Thank you. Well, that's about all the time we have, Toya, but I want to thank you once again for joining us here at Reader's Corner, most importantly for writing the book, Last Summer on State Street by Toya Wolf. Toya, best wishes to you, and I look forward to your next novel. (laughs) Thanks so much. Great. Take care. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. Reader's Corner.